Hi everyone and welcome to Marketplace Jungle, brought to you by Ecomillion. I'm your host, Jesse Ragg. Being able to reach buyers outside of your home country is one of the major reasons for selling on marketplaces. Amazon offers a lot of solutions to help sellers test out new markets, but by taking a few extra steps to overcome these hurdles yourself, you'll open up a world of new potential sales channels. And that's the purpose of this podcast, to explore the marketplace opportunities beyond Amazon and what steps are necessary for you to build a successful marketplace business rather than just an Amazon business reliant on FBA. Today's guest is Andy Cooper, Head of Sales and Marketing at Global E-Commerce Experts, or GEE for short, a full-service solution provider which tackles all aspects of expanding your e-commerce business internationally. Don't worry though, this isn't a sponsored episode, nor is it a sales pitch. It's 40 minutes of me picking Andy's brain for as much knowledge on the topics facing marketplace businesses who would like to expand internationally, but don't know where to get started. In this episode, expect to learn which marketplaces Andy's team sees perform best across their 2,500 sellers, who or what a responsible person is when it comes to setting up shop internationally, what compliance factors you need to take into consideration from business to product and packaging, what you can do to reduce the environmental impact of your products, and much more. Andy, thanks so much for joining on Marketplace Jungle. It's fantastic to have you here. Likewise. Thanks for having me, Jesse. Andy, before we jump into talking about who global e-commerce experts are and what you do, I'd love to hear who you are and what you do, how you got started at GEE and what brought you to us today. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, as ever, thanks for having me. Good to see you again. So I'm Andy Cooper, Head of Sales and Marketing at GEE. Uh, I've been with the company now two and a half years. Um Prior to that, my e-commerce journey actually started about eight years ago. I've been involved in um, a variety of aspects of it, a lot of finance elements of it. Um, and then I was lucky enough to join GE to, uh, as I mentioned, look after the sales and marketing team and, and expand a little bit more on what it takes for someone to expand it in their entirety to the UK and Europe, <clears throat> not just in one particular service. So, yeah, wealth of knowledge has been built. And, uh, yeah, and, and here we are. So global e-commerce experts, and you guys have a range of different services around helping a seller to expand internationally. In this podcast, we like to focus on the topic of marketplaces sure. beyond Amazon. Now, Amazon itself, for all its faults, does make it easy for a seller to test out new markets. And a lot of sellers will use the various Amazon tools and, and especially FBA to figure out, is there a market for my products in market X? And if they've figured out that actually, yes, there is a demand for the products there, then the next step will be what other channels are there in that country, in that region. And this is where a lot of sellers get stuck because they realize that a lot of those things Amazon have been solving for them, yeah. they now have to do themselves. Now they probably have, in most cases, a local VAT number. For example, if you're using PAN-EU FBA, you'll already have a VAT number for a lot of countries. But there are other issues that sellers face Maybe it's getting a local entity. Maybe it's dealing with local compliance around packaging or labeling. Yes. I'd love to get your input on what are some of the biggest issues that a seller that is looking at international expansion, and I use that term broadly because our audience might be listening from the UK and international could be Europe yeah. or the US or it could be a German seller that's looking at the UK, post-Brexit UK as an option, any other combination, any other international territories. But what are some of the generic 
problems that a seller faces that they might not expect to face? What are some of the surprises? Yeah, sure. I mean, <clears throat> what's quite interesting in our experience about expansion in general, relative to where you're going, is generally the hurdles and the pain points that you know either anticipated by the seller or experienced are the same, yeah, or, or broadly the same. It doesn't really matter where you're going. Um, you generally face similar issues. So, um, I mean, firstly, just going back to your point, Jesse, about the multi-marketplace, um, you know, you, you're absolutely right with Amazon. You know, a lot of sellers are, are blinkered with Amazon, and rightly so in many cases, uh, might I add, because, of course, they're dominant in most countries and the ease of what they offer, specifically the fulfillment elements, of course, attractive, and it means that people don't have to control their stock themselves in many respects. So, um, rightly so on that front. But <clears throat> I think what we what we experience when we're speaking to people is actually when they're coming out of, we use the USA as an example, when they come out of the United States of America where uh, Amazon is super dominant in, in mo- almost, almost all the states, the, <clears throat> when they come to the UK and Europe, and in and, and this situation, particularly Europe, Amazon isn't so dominant. And in some countries, it's, it's you know five to 10 down the list of dominant marketplaces. So it's the education piece there and being open, you know, you're always open to, what other opportunities are out there and, you know, thinking outside the box, or I hate that terminology, but in terms of, well, I'm going to go in with Amazon in, the, in this new country, not in my domestic country. I want to move. I want to stay with Amazon because it's familiar to me. I understand it. And I know that what, you know, the actions I take in my, my domestic country are going to be very, very similar to, uh, you know, the, the next origin I want to go to. But open your eyes to actually investigating and using, you know, service providers and knowledge and that to understand what is the dominant marketplace and where best to, you know, put your stock essentially. Uh, of, of course, with that, you're going to need to, you know, investigate a 3PL or some description to make sure they can suit your needs. But, you know, the, the benefits of doing that, particularly throughout Europe, are huge because you can, um, you know, start selling in countries and, uh, and be dominant yourself as a seller uh, and those particular countries quicker than you may do just on Amazon. So I think that, that first and foremost, your point earlier, I think it's important that, you know, certainly when you are expanding out of uh, where you're currently selling, that you give the opportunity to understand and learn about other marketplaces. Mm-hmm. And in terms of challenges and the pain points we typically hear from clients when they're wanting to expand, are all they center around compliance in the main. And that word, you know, scares most people, specifically if you're not, you know, you don't understand what world you're going into. So that word... I think it's synonymous with bureaucracy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, no, I just don't know what to do. And it worries people because, of course, you're starting to be involved with regulators and governments and all these all these horrible words, which uh, uh, understandably, uh, you know, can worry people. But So that is the biggest bit. I mean, there are others which I'll come on to in a minute. The compliance piece is, is really key. And if we talk specifically about coming into the UK and Europe, as a, a nation, a couple of nations, we we hold um, you know compliance is super key, and we're, we're far stricter than most other countries. Now, whilst that's that's good once you're here because you know you're controlled and your goods are safe essentially from a compliance perspective. Obviously, that does mean that generally the country which you're selling from is less strict about your packaging requirements and sometimes your VAT requirements or your tax. So the assumption with that is that when they move into these regions, they're going to have to go through this you know, plethora of paperwork and entirely redesign their label and have to have conversations with accountants, you know, in another region and, you know, having to make sure their customs paperwork is 
you know, filled out differently than they might experience in another region. All of these sort of assumptions that come by, and and, and I under, fully understand why, um, to make sure they're zipped up. But I think you know that is for most people the most challenging part. And what I would say to that for those for those people and, and your listeners that are maybe thinking the same, because I'm sure that they would have all been down that that sort of thought road there, is just seek some guidance now. Uh, in Amazon's defence, they're, they're, they're pretty good at um, trying to educate people on it and they're pretty good at <clears throat> pointing people in the right direction of who can help them. But just absorb information, use you know, use podcasts like this, use webinars to try and understand. There's, there's so much content out there that you can help. Uh, or, or, you know, speak to a service provider who's, uh, you know, deeply integrated into that and can give you the advice you need because there's lots of words cropping up now, terminology such as, you know, EPR, in the EU with your packaging requirements, there's, you know, responsible person, food business operator, there's all this stuff which you hear and see and Amazon make you aware of that I can understand why it's quite baffling. But in reality, um, it's, it's really not that bad. And, and you know, it's easy for me to say I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in the UK and I live and breathe it. And it's easy for me to say that to somebody who doesn't experience it. But in reality, you know, you speak to somebody who can support you with it and knows what they're doing. It really isn't that bad. So, uh, you know, and that, that's our sort of first five-minute conversation that we have with our clients. Is like just we, we'll go, we'll, you know, we'll we'll take you through all this. We'll talk you through the journey, and and by the end of it, you'll feel a lot more, you know, a lot better about what that looks like. Um, so, what are the boxes that have to be ticked? Because I mean, so tell me, like, let's look at the let's look at compliance for yes. a second. Because compliance is a very broad term. What what should I think about that falls under the category of compliance? Yeah, sure. So we'll split it into two categories. So there's the business compliance piece, and then there's a the product label compliance piece. So the business compliance piece is your, your VAT. So we just pick we'll pick the UK <clears throat> as an example, because um, that would be slightly more familiar to people. So the UK you're going to need to have a VAT number. You're going to need to make sure that you're registered for VAT in the UK. Now, there's no requirement to come to the UK. You don't need to sign any paperwork over here. You, d- you don't need to register an entity here. If you don't want to, that isn't an option and probably a conversation for another day. But in order to trade in the UK or in Europe, in fact, you don't need uh, anything other than a VAT number. So you'll register for that VAT number. Now, that can be done. Anybody can go to HMRC website and register for a VAT number. <clears throat> um, you can do that, and, and as a, a byproduct of registering that, you'll also get an EORI number, E-O-R-I, which would be a shipping element. So you have your VAT to pay your tax, and then you have the EORI, which is a shipping part of uh, the VAT number. They come uh, together, so they go for hand in hand. Once that's complete, once you've got your VAT number, essentially you can start trading in the UK. So you could put your goods on the water or in the air, get them over to the UK and start selling. It would be accepted in Amazon, clearly, and that's any marketplace – um, you're, you're free to sell your goods wherever you wish. So do you not need an importer of record? Yep. So all of that will come with the shipping element. So providing that you okay. use a, a reputable shipping agent, um, you know, and can support your customs clearance, they'll generally offer the importer of record, like a sort of a, a, um, a natural flow of somebody who's importing from overseas. So, yes, you, you're absolutely correct, Jesse. You will require that. That's just somebody to be responsible in the in the country in which you're shipping goods into. Yeah. Um, relatively straightforward. There's no paperwork necessarily involved in that outside of the stuff you typically experience with shipping goods. Um, but yeah, relatively straightforward. And that's something which is sort of, um, as I mentioned, goes hand in hand with that piece. 
So once you've got that uh, and you're right, you've got your shipping and customs piece, you're, you're okay to ship goods. The second piece, and we're talking you know, specifically about the UK and EU, is making sure your goods are appropriate to sell. Now, um, if we use the USA, coming to the UK as an example here, so the regulations in the US are not as strict as the UK. Okay, of course, in many ways, that's a huge benefit uh, because it means that you can you know, make certain claims on your labels without having to have them put through uh, to go through the regulator. And then they're, they're, and they're quite lenient about uh, you know, marketing practices and that sort of stuff and what goes on your products. When you come over to the UK, the, the, the rules are far stricter. So what that means is that it doesn't mean to say your current label can't be used. It just means you need to have that checked out to ensure that you haven't got any claims that you can't have on there. You haven't got any ingredients that are on the novel foods list, as an example, that can't be sold in the UK. <clears throat> and, you know, if we're talking about specific um, product categories such as cosmetics and food supplements and stuff like that, some other elements mm. that may need to be checked. But in its most basic form, is check the label for its compliance. Now, once that's done... And I guess oh, sorry, on, that, on that note, if we're checking the label... Yeah we're presumably also having to check what's actually in the product as well. It's not just, it's not like you can remove something from the label that's not allowed to be in the no. product <laughs> and then it's okay. I guess you have to remove it from the product too, if it's not okay. Yes, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's very rare, actually. If we're talking about ingredients in products, it's very rare and it probably happens about 1% of the time, maybe, where there's a product that can't be sold because despite the regulation changes in countries, of course, we're still in we still talk, you know, we're still nations who communicate and understand and, you know, obviously we're getting our raw ingredients and our, you know, stuff from the same places. So mm -hmm. it's very rare that that happens, but you need to check it because there are some quirky ones that might be in there, which is, you know, some powdered forms of, I think we had one the other day, which is an orange powder, um, which hasn't okay. been tested yet. It's still in, you know, in the UK to enable it to be sold in a product. Whereas, I mean, we oranges, we have orange juice, we have orange, whatever. Like, what's the difference between a powder? But it's those sorts of things which from time to time crop up. So it's important that you use a reputable service provider to in order to check your label. And then they're like... So what does that mean? So, Sorry to interrupt. What, 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 am I, what am I Googling for to find somebody or someone yeah. or a company who can tell me whether or not I'm allowed to sell my products yeah, so, I in mean, this new market? Absolutely. It's so a product label compliance check for sale in the UK and Europe. We share the same regulations as Europe, despite the mess up we made of um, Brexit. So if you're good for the UK in terms of your label, you're okay to sell in Europe. So just ensure that the you know the provider you use is checking for all of them. Um, there are, and again, there's some slightly quirky bits depending on which country, but we're broadly the same. Um, yeah, so you can just type in product label review check. Amazon will, and which I'll come on to in the second part of this compliance piece is Amazon will request that you've got a compliant label, they will, they, you'll need something called a responsible person, which is the byproduct of it, which I'll come into in a minute. You know, you'll have to enter that information into Seller Central in order to sell. So this is this is a requirement, not, a, not an option, really, to ensure you've got a compliant label. So once you've got that, and we, you know, the, the company's advised on whether you need any removals from your label, additions, uh, <clears throat> or adjustments to it, you would then make those changes. And as I mentioned before, they're very unlikely to uh, to disrupt what you're currently doing in your domestic country. We're not talking about big changes here. We're not talking about aesthetic changes. We're talking about you know particular ingredients or claims. So once that's done, you then need to instruct somebody, if you haven't got a legal entity 
in the country in which you're selling or the region, so either the UK and Europe or Europe, you'll need to have what's called a responsible person. Now, without adding any confusion to this, there's lots of terminology used for the responsible person. Um, but again, it's probably a, a podcast in itself. But the broad spectrum of it is a responsible person, which is an, an address of somebody who's competent in the UK, UK and or EU to, <clears throat> to be responsible, partly responsible for the compliance of your goods. Now, that person is typically the person who's conducted the label check. Because, of course, they've checked the label. They've said, right, okay, um, Mr. Client, that's now compliant. You can now attach our address as your responsible person to your label to represent you in the UK. Now that so it doesn't have to be a natural person, like a you know, it doesn't have to be you know Jochen Schmidt from Hamburg. It can no, be no, it's got so and so GmbH. You've got it, yeah. So yeah, it's generally it's generally a company. It has to be an address or you know a company registered in um, in the UK and or a country within Europe. It doesn't matter which one. Uh, and, that, and that we put on your label then to satisfy the regulators and input into, I know we're talking about Amazon quite a lot here and the idea is to go multi-marketplace, but the, um, you have to put it into Sell Essential just to give people the idea of what how important it is to have that. And of course, you know, some other marketplaces are less strict about compliance of products, despite the regulators in the UK and EU being super hot on it, as you can imagine. But I mean, that doesn't really matter, but at some point it will happen. And then you'll have, you'll, enable, you'll have to have that across um, you know, all of your sales. I mean, if you go into a retail outlet anywhere in the UK or Europe, it'll be fully compliant. And um, it's just in some cases uh, on marketplaces, they're, they're just sort of catching up with that. I guess this is another one of those things that at some point regulation will dictate that the marketplace is responsible for controlling whether or not that happens. Absolutely. And at that point, we'll see the marketplaces at it more stringently. Correct. And I mean, Amazon have already done that. You know, Amazon... There's some horror stories of products getting, you know, delisted because they're non-compliant, um, despite them being having having been sold previously for five years. You know, having buy box and all that, all the, all the great stuff, and then just one day, you know, somebody's checking it; it's non-compliant, cease listing, and of course, that's. I mean, that's that's. I mean, it's sacrilege, but um, you know, those sorts of things are devastating to businesses. That's exactly the. That's exactly the reason for this podcast. I've seen far too many sellers where they build a business around the fact that 90 plus percent of their revenue comes from mm -hmm. Amazon. And then you get one little thing like that, you know, and the product probably was compliant, but they just haven't uploaded an up-to-date certificate or something. Absolutely. And that's it. Four weeks offline while you're dealing with the account suspension and Amazon going, oh, yep, cool, you're reinstated. Those four weeks can be critical. If that happens yeah. during peak, if that, you know, that's people losing jobs, that's businesses going bankrupt. Okay. And that's why, like, you're never no no second channel, with, with the exception of you know certain niche categories for particular products. No second channel is going to repeat what Amazon does. If you're doing 100k a month on Amazon, you're not going to do 100k on eBay in most cases. So you probably need to add five, ten, fifty new marketplaces to get that 100k a month. Yes. And exactly the exactly what you just said is the reason why that's so important. Because if that suspension happens and that account goes offline, that's the moment when these other channels are going to keep you afloat. So eggs in one basket, Jobby. So um, I think what's really important to to note though is I don't. This isn't ninety nine percent of the time. This isn't ignorance from. It's not about sending over non compliant products intentionally. It's just purely about. You know, that it's been heightened and we're just catching up here. So it's an, edu it's an education 
piece really it's just about understanding mm-hmm. you know talking to the right people if you're looking to launch or broaden your you know horizons to other marketplaces just you know go through that small bit and it, and it's it, it's not um expensive to do so you know go through that little bit at the beginning you know the extra sort of due diligence to make sure your products are compliant and you won't you won't have these challenges and then you can spread your wings to other marketplaces you know not not because of fear of losing out from one using it to you know increase the revenue of your brand right so another topic with compliance is of course packaging yes. which is and we almost saw returns becoming an issue as well in Switzerland. This law, I don't think the, that new law or that part of the new climate law, which got approved last week, the returns element, which was spoken about, I don't think that actually got voted in. But it's interesting that that conversation is happening around potentially penalizing consumers who return too many, or I think it was passing on the yeah. penalty via the seller. But I'm wondering if you've got a bit of an overview that you can share, because I've lost... I've lost track of which countries have which requirements for which types of products, where you're allowed to use, where you have to use paper, where you're not allowed to use plastic, what type of plastic. Is there any kind of, uh, do you have any information you can share there or any resources you can point people to? Yeah. So, um, yeah, you're referring to the EPR, which is Extended Producer Responsibility, um, and the WE, which is not a nice fancy. Yeah, I mean, they could have, sure, they could have thought something slightly better than that. But yeah, France and Germany in particular are super hot on that. It's going to be coming out, as you mentioned, in other countries, Switzerland, the UK won't be far behind. And essentially, what they're trying to do is, is trying to um, clearly reduce the amount of, uh, you know, single use packaging. I mean, that's the key one here, and reduce the amount of batteries and, um, you know, lithium ion stuff and all that jazz. But the, you know, the key thing is to, um, pass that on at the beginning of the journey to the client who's selling the goods, passing that, that fee on. So when they're, when you register for that, you'll input what, what your goods are made out of and what the packaging's made out of. And then subsequently, they'll, you'll tell them a, a forecast for the next 12 months, and then they will calculate your contribution to the end of life of that product. And then you'll pay that at the beginning and then every annually currently, at the end of the financial year you look they'll look at your sales and what you sold and the cubic weight of what the you know packaging is and then they'll either add or deduct from that initial payment now again it's 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 not an expensive task so i don't think people need to be put off by it certainly not going to europe because it's going to be everywhere at some point it's just what depending on when that particular country chooses to do it so at some point they're going to almost be forced into doing it you know to reduce that single-use plastic and, and and um you know, look to use something a bit more sustainable. But yeah, it's relatively cost-effective. I mean, just to give you an idea, a typical sort of registration for a product's about $50. Uh, and then, you know, you, I mean, it does entirely depends on how much you're selling, but you're talking about tens of dollars for thousands of units rather than thousands of dollars for hundreds of units. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not a bank breaker, when it comes to that so again i don't think people need to be concerned i think it's just one of those things that we've got to roll with the punches and you know and understand that you know the world is trying to do their bit for this sort of stuff and uh you know thinking a bit harder about you know how your package how your uh, goods are packaged and what they're being made out of are there any steps that a seller can take beyond that to perhaps do it that they can be doing from your experience from the logistics side of things, what steps a, a typical seller can and should be doing to try and reduce their footprint there? Um, I think, yeah. I mean, I think the obvious things that spring to mind, like, 
you know, things like uh, polystyrene, you know, things like reducing the consumption of that plastic, any plastics. I mean, you, you hear about it you know, daily, weekly in the news about, you know, the amount of plastic floating around the ocean and stuff like that. Like thinking about what it's made out of, you know, if you, I'm just thinking of some recent examples, uh, you know, we've got a lot of goods coming in with plastic straws still. And of course they're, you know, some, you can't sell them uh, mm-hmm. here, but you know, coming in with plastic straws, just thinking about options for that, you know, reusable plastic straws. Sort of, I know it sounds obvious, Jesse, and I'm giving sort of a bit of a broad spectrum here, but it really is just thinking about how can I package it? You know, is there an alternative to it? Can I use shredded cardboard as opposed to filling it with polystyrene balls? You know, can I, yeah, that, those sorts of things are, are key. So I'm not from the logistics space at all, but every time I walk into any kind of e-commerce warehouse, the thing that really honestly breaks my heart every time I see it is the pallet wrapping. Yes. And I think, you know what? It doesn't matter how many times I say no to a plastic straw. Mm-hmm. If every retailer that's shipping pallets into FBA continues to use that much cling film effectively to wrap around that huge that cubic meter of whatever is in those boxes doesn't matter. And then the individual packaging can be paper and everything can be recycled. And there's not a single polystyrene ball in there. But then when you wrap it all in what feels like a hundred meters of cling film, yeah. and that's the part of the, of the puzzle that I struggle to see ever being f- solved. Uh, have you come across any, any alternatives to that? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it, I mean, I agree. I mean, I don't think you, you couldn't not, you know, it's one of those things which, yeah, there's. I mean, there's options. So let me give some options. We um, there's some cardboard side walls that slot over a standard UK pallet, as an example, which will keep the boxes intact. Because the key thing here is, whilst of course the, pla- the use of plastic is critical here, there's also a f- huge safety element around this because you're yeah, you're mm-hmm. moving pallets and stuff. So it's about security as well, which doesn't excuse the fact, but you also need to think about you know how how can we stabilise this without using something which is keeping it tight. Uh, and engraved, but mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's the straps we use, like the thin plastic straps with, with a metal clip on it. Um, you know, they're they're quite good. They're not you can't use them for everything because if you've got a soft boxes, you know, if they're hard filled up with a you know a canister or something, that's okay. If you're talking about you know it's filled with stuffed toys, it just bend it. It wouldn't be of any use whatsoever. But there's those sleeves which I'll come back to, which set over a standard UK pallet, uh, and then it's just secured by you know, some tape around the middle and it, and it, it keeps the whole thing from moving. Uh, there are options out there. Uh, are they advanced enough? You could argue no, but, you know, there are options for, you know, for logistics and free PLs to use. It feels like there's a business opportunity there for someone to come up with something that's uh, a lot better than that. There you go. Is anyone listening that wants, a, wants yeah. an idea or something? To- <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, I wanted to come back to something you talked about before, which was the the labels side of things. Because obviously, when in, in addition to the content of you know what's allowed to be on the labels, what's supposed to be on the labels, another topic is the languages of the labels. Yeah. And I'm, I'm typically if I so I live in Germany, and, and typically whenever I buy a product, it, it will be in the label will be in German, French, Italian, Spanish, and of course that's uh, in my being biased in, in my little e-commerce bubble. Yeah. I always associate that with the fact that those were like your first pan-EU countries. And so there was someone somewhere started this pattern of like, these products are going to Europe, therefore it needs to be in these four languages. But then of course you got Dutch, uh, you know, you got Netherlands and Sweden and Poland and, and all these other uh, FBA countries, 
popping up left, right, and center. And, and so it means that there's maybe more markets that need to be included on the label. And I'm wondering if you've seen any information or if you've got any figures around the benefits between effectively spamming a product label with, you know, an ever-growing number of, there's only so many ways you can make it look nice yeah. if you've got 50, like, 50 like, yeah. or 20, all 27 uh, EU languages on the back of the um, on the back of a small packet of crisps or whatever it is you're selling, it doesn't work. So I'm wondering, is it worth at some point having country-specific packaging somehow or language-specific packaging? Obviously, that doesn't yeah. really work with FBA because they're going to be moving the items around. But if you're dealing with, if you've got a little bit more control over which products are being sent to which areas, is that something that would have specific benefits um, that you could maybe control through different SKU naming or something like that? And there's no doubt that uh, you know having a a label per country would be hugely beneficial like to have, because you're right. When you, when you live in a country and you pick a product up, you, ideally you want to see that label in its entirety in a language that you, you're familiar with, right? Your first language. I mean, that's just, you know, that's, that's perfect. But unless you're in sort of a retail outlet, you know, where these the distributors are doing that, you know, they're running hundreds of millions of units off for one particular region, and that's that all their stock goes there. It's slightly trickier, as you mentioned, when it comes to an e-commerce platform, because of course you want to send it to multiple countries for obvious reasons, such as you don't want to be sending eight shipments to the pan EU countries individually. Like just, just you know, unless you're of a certain size, it wouldn't make sense. So, what we you know we recommend is that if you've if you're doing that and you're having multiple languages, is if you've got an opportunity to put it as an insert super common people are familiar with it cost effective loads of information on it uh perfect yeah job done you can put multiple languages and you can build out as much as you want uh <clears throat> and put it in your product job done if you don't have that luxury you've got a small product where you can't do that appeal and reveal label is is just as good so it consultina's out you can fit less information on it, but in reality, you don't need to put all information on there anyway, which I'll come on to in a minute. But you can put lots of information on there, multiple languages, but keep it specific to what you want the end user to see. Yeah, this works for some things. If you've got, you know, if you're selling a pogo stick, I don't know why that came to my mind, but you're selling a pogo stick, all you want on your label is to tell people how to use it and if it's got any functionalities, what to do, safety instructions, you know, you know, don't turn it upside down, you know, and jump on it, whatever, whatever you want to put on it. Um, you know, you've got, you want to put the key information on it, and that's enough because generally if you're buying a pogo stick, you know what a pogo stick is, right? So that's okay, and then, and that's fine. If you've got something like, I don't know, you're selling a, a bottle of uh, food supplements and you're selling them in a tiny little bottle, the information you put on there is a bit more critical because, of course, you've got lots mm -hmm. of safety information. You probably have some warnings on it. You know, some some uh, you know, not not to be used by children, all that sort of stuff. It's slightly that's uh, slightly trickier, but a pin and reveal pin and reveal label is fine. Or consider putting it in a box. I don't know if that hopefully that answers. Question, yeah, yeah. There's, there's several options available, and really trying to tailor that to what's my product, what can I do as a as a minimum to educate my the end user, but also make it aesthetically pleasing so that people want to buy it. You know, if it's all in, you're trying to sell it in Germany, it's all in English. And then there's a tiny little sticker on it, which gives them three lines about, you know, in German about how to use it. I mean, the likelihood is if they've got one next to it, which is more appropriate for the German market, because 
people have put some thought into it, you're going to buy that one. I mean, mm. so I think there's a couple of couple of uh, things to think about there. There's some talk at the moment, or maybe it's even come through. I'm not sure. I haven't followed it that closely, but I've seen a few things around QR code uh, requirements on labeling. And obviously there's different use cases for that. There's the whole sustainability tracking, look at where this product actually came from and what the impact of this purchase is. Um, But obviously there's a solution as well, potentially, at least for anyone kind of under 60, 70, I guess, that knows how you, I mean, since COVID, I think most people now know how a QR code works. And um, we've seen a resurgence there, think, thanks to every restaurant in the world sticking QR codes to their table. Um, and that being the lazy way of not having to print new menus every day. Yeah. Um, but are there any requirements there that you're aware of that, or that are there or that are coming? It, I mean, there isn't any requirements for it. It's, it's the opposite, actually. It's not, um, it's not deemed appropriate. Uh, I mean, I can't speak for all of the European countries because um, I don't know the answer, but it's um, it's the other way, actually, where they're deeming it not appropriate for a full. I think there's some information you can put on a QR code uh, that's appropriate, general information. But when it comes to, like, specific safety and warning labels, uh, it's, it's not, not quite there yet. I mean, I've got, okay. let's be honest, I mean, uh, you know, I don't think it's far away. I mean... As you quite rightly mentioned, you know, everybody, more or less everybody now has a smartphone. They're familiar with it because they've been through, you know, the god awful COVID situation where it was normal practice everywhere. So, yeah, I don't think it's far away. And I think I think it's enough. Uh, but I also think that there's potential there for, you know, people to exploit it in some respects and, uh, you know, by putting all their information on it, not, not exploiting it as long terminology, but using it to their advantage rather than, the end user. Hmm. I, I mean, just uh, again, a very biased opinion here, but as a native English speaker living in a non-English speaking language, and in my particular case, I, I've got food allergies. So when I'm yeah. buying food products, I've got to check the label a lot. And that's the most annoying part of my shopping experience every time, because it turns something that should be a quick glance for the bits in bold into there's like 50 words here that are bold because I've got to look at I've got to figure out where the either the German or the English bit yeah. is amongst the Dutch, the Slovenian, the Polish, the whatever else that's on the back of this packet of Pringles and figure out, can I eat this product or not? I just want to scan a code that's on the front and have it maybe even connect to an app that gives me a green light that says, yeah. yep, you're good Traffic to go. Stick it in yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. I, I mean, fully understand. And, and that makes, you know, when when you put it like that, Jesse, it makes complete sense. I mean, why why wouldn't they do that and make it far easier for the end user, particularly if you've got multiple languages on a product? Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. sure. Okay, I'm I'm very I am very conscious of of your time today, Andy. I I've got a million questions. As you said, we've opened up a bunch of cans of worms here that could potentially each be individual episodes in that on their own. And I'll definitely open up the floor to the listeners to hit me up if there are any topics that you'd like me to drag Andy back on to talk about what on earth the responsible person is, does, or uh, how to find one, or any of the other topics that we've we've talked about. I think to come back to the overarching topic here of marketplaces beyond Amazon, you are in a fortunate position that you work with a lot of brands Mm -hmm. in a lot of categories and a lot of specifically with helping them expand internationally. And... To wrap this conversation up, I'd love to get any feedback from you on which marketplaces you've seen your sellers be the most successful mm-hmm. on. Feel free to be as detailed as you want, category specific or, or country specific, which channels you've seen surprising success on, which ones maybe didn't perform as well as you 
hoped they might. And, and maybe we can start off by also talking about like how many sellers you've got what we're talking about here to give the numbers a bit of perspective. Yeah, sure. So I've got a couple of cases which spring to mind. I mean, Europe actually, you know, we predominantly deal with US sellers um, coming over to the UK and EU. And EU is slightly trickier for, for people to branch out of Amazon. And I understand why, because there's a lot of marketplaces there um, totally unfamiliar and they're, and they're, they're very specific to their country. Um, so it's slightly trickier to, to move away from Amazon. But what we've had huge success in is BOL.com in the Netherlands, in Holland. Right there. Mm-hmm. Um, because Amazon up until, I'm probably get my dates wrong, but up until the tail end of last year, uh, there was no fulfillment center there. Uh, and it, was, it, it almost didn't exist. Um, so BOL.com was you know, entirely dominant there. Um, and, and our facilities there, which helps, but, but yeah, it just helped with our yeah. clients understanding that if you're selling on Amazon and you want to sell in Holland, like, you know, it's attractive because of course you're right next to Germany and Amazon's super dominant there. So great if Germany sorted, fine, done. But if you want to then attract, you know, domestic shipments within Holland, it's not going to work. So Holland.com mm. is going to be super, super key for you. So there's been a lot of success there in the UK eBay is, has been a, a bit of a rocket ship, really, for lots of our clients. Um, I mean, it is specific to the categories. You know, some do well on other marketplaces, as, you, as you're fully aware, um, than others. But, yeah, things like, you know, some of our clients sell, like, uh, you know, handmade stuff, great Wayfair. You know, um, some of them are selling, you know, lots of car accessories and, you know, car products, cleaning products. eBay, ideal, you know, perfect for them, some great success on that. Um I'd say eBay's probably the been the key one for us outside of Amazon, and then oddly Onbuy. I mean, Onbuy have been really strong for a lot of our clients in the UK. Uh, so, sort of, um, you know, why oddly? Well, I just think because of the size. You know, I think what, you know um, when you're talking about the, the big players in the UK, Amazon and eBay, super dominant. I suppose what we experienced was is that Onbuy, despite their size, where um, you know, offered a lot of sellers where they're not attracted to Amazon or eBay. Different different demographic, different type of buyer. So I suppose from our client's perspective, slightly shocked that they weren't attracting those people on the marketplaces where they're already on, which are super dominant. So it's a bit mm. of a, I mean, it's awesome. It's great, great news. So, um, you, you know, um, yeah, that's, that's probably it. And in terms of percentage of, what was your other question, Jesse? Clients who are on multi-marketplace. Uh, so I was I was just thinking along what sort of size is your we, we've just talked yeah. about how the different customers are doing on, on which marketplaces but I'm just curious what the sample size is here how many sellers are we talking about um, that you're getting that information from Yeah no so we've we've expanded about two and a half thousand sellers internationally into UK and Europe uh, we have circa three hundred uh, warehouse clients all of those people are over ninety nine percent of them are over on Amazon. Uh, and in uh, lots of them in the retail outlets. Some of them are single, you know, small businesses just wanting to expand into the UK and Europe. Perfect. A lot of them, we have a lot of aggregators who have multiple brands. Um, so various sizes, you know, from five-figure sellers up and upwards. And so that varies quite considerably. Um, but yeah, our warehouse clients are the ones who are, you know, clearly fulfilled from us. Many of our clients use other free PLs, which of course, no problem whatsoever, um, who often, you know, pointed towards other marketplaces as well. But, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, all on Amazon, some of them are on other e-commerce marketplaces. But we do, we encourage people to explore it. 
Fantastic. Well, hopefully there's some people listening here today that have heard all of this and thought, you know what, that's far too much work. I'm just going to give GEE a call. But for those people that do want to give it a go themselves and take that plunge with expanding internationally, I really hope that there's been some useful tips here. I've definitely learned a lot and hopefully the audience has too. So Andy, thanks a bunch for joining. It's been Been a pleasure as always. Yeah, thanks. Thank you.